The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. I recognize that not everyone has grown up in church, and so when you hear a term like Advent, it may not mean much to you. Uh, And so maybe you don't actually even really know what Advent means. Uh, Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And the purpose of Advent is to spend four weeks before Christmas preparing our hearts for that Christmas celebration, reflecting on this meaning of what it is that Jesus came into our world to save us from our sin. The two most important holidays on the Christian calendar, uh, Christmas and Easter, are accompanied by these extended periods of meditation and reflection. For Christmas, it's Advent, and then for Easter, it's Lent. And I think the, the reason why we do that is to say, to celebrate these moments, these holidays, for just a single day is not enough. These special moments in our calendar invite us to an extended Uh, time of reflection as we really think about the deeper meanings behind why these are such important days on the Christian calendar. And so uh, this year's Advent series, as Betty already mentioned, is called Touchstone. Uh, Again, I don't know if you know what a touchstone is, but a touchstone is a special stone that's basically used to test the purity of precious metals like gold or silver. What you do is you basically take that touchstone and you Take the metal you're testing and you just rub it against the stone and you see what color that the streak is that's left by that stone, uh, by the metal. And that'll basically tell you how genuine, how pure that metal is. Uh, Well, over time, the term touchstone uh, referred to basically any test or criterion uh, for determining the quality or genuineness of something. Well, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus as a newborn to be dedicated at the temple, they were met by this very old man named Simeon, who was told a promise by God that he would see the Messiah born into our world before he would die. We don't know how long he waited for this promise. But when Joseph and Mary come into the temple to dedicate Jesus as an eight-day-old baby, Simeon takes the baby into his arms and realizes Jesus is the one. And he offers us this song of praise to God in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 to 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you have now dismissed your servant in peace. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We're told that Joseph and Mary marveled when they heard the song being sung about their little baby that was just born to them. But then, right after he sings those words, um, Simeon offers this very sobering prophecy after that about the fate of this child. It continues, verse 34 to 35, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce 
your own soul too. In essence, Simeon was saying about Jesus that this baby born into our world will be the touchstone of all humanity because based on this child, every person's heart will be exposed and tested and their destiny will be determined by how they respond to the invitation of this child. As an adult, Jesus would utter these difficult words to describe his own ministry. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 53, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I've never seen these verses on a Christmas card before, ever. It's quite a contrast, isn't it, from the hallmark sanitized version of Christmas that we're so used to of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, sipping hot chocolate, and opening Christmas presents under a Christmas tree. But it's an important part of the Christmas message as presented to us in the pages of the Bible. Because the child that was born 2,000 years ago named Jesus would provide a way for a dying world to be saved. And the question that is repeatedly visited is, how do you respond to this invitation for new life with Christ? And each week, we will focus on a different person who met Jesus and see what that encounter revealed. If we could go to the next slide. Uh, is there? Yeah, yeah. Each week, we will focus on a different person who met Jesus and see what he revealed in their hearts, what we can learn from our own relationship with Jesus through those encounters. Well, this week our focus is on a man known as Herod the Great. Now, there's some confusion because there's multiple Herods in the Bible. This is not the Herod that Jesus dealt with most of the time in his adult life. That's one of Herod's sons. But the Herod that we're talking about in the birth narrative of Jesus is a man named Herod the Great. And by the time that Jesus is born, Herod has been ruling for around 40 years already. He's getting very old now. And he was appointed as king over Israel by the Roman rulers. And that's why he held his title, King of the Jews. And Herod was a great builder. He greatly expanded the city, and he even greatly expanded and beautified the temple in Jerusalem. It became known as Herod's Temple. But he was also a very shrewd and manipulative politician, known for his cruelty. Later on in his life, around this time when Jesus was born, he became incredibly paranoid of everyone around him that he thought was trying to steal his crown. And so as a result of that, he ended up putting so many people to death, anyone that he thought was a threat to his throne. He would go on to even put his own wife to death, as well as three of his sons he killed. Witnessing the lengths to which Herod would go to protect his title, Augustus Caesar 
who was the emperor of Rome at the time, joked about Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. And you can imagine the state of mind that a person like this would have been when these wise men, this, this, these magi, come and ask, where can we worship this king that was just born? Let's actually take a look at that story that's found in Matthew 2. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 18. I, I know it's a bit of an extended passage, but I think it's important for us to get the sense of the whole story that's happening here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, uh, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Like I said, um, I think in our cultural Christianity that we are so uh, faced with in America, there is this sanitized version of Christmas, of the Christmas story that we're presented with. Uh, it's so easy as a result of that to forget how actually disturbing and unsettling the full Christmas story actually is as recorded in the Bible. You know, it's a modern-day tradition in our times to send out birth announcements uh, to friends and family, letting them know that a child has been born into your family. I know we did it for all of our kids, and I suspect you did it when your kids were born. This is actually a birth announcement that we sent to our family. We mailed it out when our daughter Bethany was born 20 years ago, okay? Uh, this was sent out in 20, two, uh, 2002, okay? Um, and it's basically to let our loved ones know a child has been born. Well, when his son was born, God also sent out a birth announcement. 
but he did it in the most unusual way. Now, these magi, it's a term that you're probably not familiar with, but they most likely came from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And what these magi were, were, they were like what we would today call seers or wise men, or maybe another parallel would be even witch doctors, but they would basically look at the stars or interpret dreams or basically use other types of magic and divination in order to predict the future or to figure out the signs of the times, to figure out what is happening around them. And what we also know is that astrology, reading the stars and other heavenly bodies, was really common in ancient times. Just about every culture, every civilization did this. But what is interesting is that there are numerous warnings in Scripture not to do this. God's people are not to do, delve into astrology. So you find Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2. This is what the Lord says, Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens though the nations are terrified by them. So this verse, along with many others, repeat this warning against astrology. And yet, here is the interesting thing. In this Christmas story, God himself will use a star as a sign to tell foreigners in a distant land about the birth of his son. And I I think What that shows us is this missionary heart of God that will use whatever means he needs to to reveal himself to people who don't have access to the written word. And so they're watching the stars religiously, and so God uses those stars as a way to draw them to Israel to encounter Jesus. And it was logical that they would end up in Herod's palace because they're looking for the birth of a king. So where else do you go but the capital and to the king's palace? The only problem was there was no baby born into Herod's uh, Herod's household at that time. And for a guy as paranoid as Herod, you can imagine how he took this news. We're told in the NIV that he was disturbed. But that doesn't really capture the intensity of what that Greek word actually means. Probably a better way to translate it was Herod was greatly agitated or he was terrified. And so Herod hatches this plan to these unsuspecting magi, these foreigners who came to worship this king, and he will now enlist them as his accomplices to find this would-be king so that he could kill him. And he has no idea where these children are, where this child was born, where he's supposed to be born. Uh, he, he doesn't know the Bible at all. So he gathers these priests and these uh, scribes, okay? And he asks them and says, where, is this, where did this happen? Where, where was this kid supposed to be born? And the teachers of the law basically say, well, according to the prophecies in the Old Testament, It's going to happen in Bethlehem. That's the place you want to go. And so the Magi find Joseph and Mary in a house in Bethlehem. And they're filled with joy when they see him. And they worship him as king. Now, you may be looking at this picture. This ain't the right picture. (laughs) What's going on here? I'm going to, over the course of this Advent, upturn a lot of our cultural Christianity cultural Christmas and say when it comes to these wise men we get the story all wrong almost all the depictions paint the wise men in a manger in an animal stall with a newborn baby 
and then presenting these gifts to them. That is not how the story happens. By the time that these people come from Persia to Jerusalem and then travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, what we can gather from putting the story together is that by then, Jesus is already one to two years old, okay? He is not a newborn anymore. They're settling on into life now in a house, not a barn, in Bethlehem. And that's when these wise men, these magi, show up. And they worship. And then they are warned not to go back to Herod because Herod has other intentions. And so they return another route back to their home. And when Herod realizes that his scheme has fallen apart, uh, he is furious. Joseph is also warned in a dream again to run away because Herod is seeking the death of his son. And so in the night, they hide away and flee to Egypt where they will remain for Jesus' first few years of life. Herod is furious. And in his rage, he does the unthinkable. And he orders his men to go to the region of Bethlehem and kill every son that was one to two years old, younger. Any child two years old or younger that is male was put to death. Now, I think here again, I think many of us imagine this massive massacre of maybe hundreds, if not thousands, of little kids. But historians kind of put the scale into perspective. They say that the town of Bethlehem in the first century was probably around a population of a thousand total. And so if you kind of extrapolate out of that, then probably what this meant was the killing of around 20 children, okay, if you scale that up. Now, the difference in scale of this massacre, though, doesn't take away from the horror of what Herod had done. It's shocking the extremes to which Herod went to find and kill Jesus. And yet, I'm, I'm getting to the point of why I am saying all this to you this morning. As disturbing as Herod's actions are, what I want to say is, I think they're actually in some ways more understandable than the behavior of the chief priests and the teachers of the law who expressed utter indifference to the news that their Messiah that they had been waiting for had just been born in their generation. Daniel Doriani writes in his commentary on Matthew, the chief priests and scribes had expert knowledge which they presented to others, yet they did not use that knowledge to direct themselves. They were satisfied to quote scripture and go home. They expect their deliverer and hear our reports that fit the prophecy. Yet Matthew implies they do nothing. They did not rejoice. They do not join the Magi. They do not go to Bethlehem to worship the shepherd and ruler or even to investigate the report. The apathy of the teachers and priests is pathetic, but all too typical. Religious people were often the last to receive Jesus. What Doriani is saying is pretty powerful here, isn't it? In a way, Herod's reaction is more understandable than these religious leaders who have just come to the realization that their, their Savior has been born. And they seem not to care a bit about that news. 
A famous historian was coaxed into attending a Christmas service in this really large church and uh, because of family members that persuaded him, but he was very skeptical about Christianity. So to honor the family, he sat through the service, and afterward he went to the preacher with this moment of insight, and he says to the preacher who just preached the sermon for that Christmas service, I think I finally get why Christmas is such a, a beloved holiday. He says, it's because I realize everything centers around a baby. <laughs> and a baby threatens no one, is what this atheist said. And what the preacher thought was, does he not know the Christmas story? Because this child was a threat. <laughs> There's no way around it. As horrible as a person as Herod was, at least he understood the gravity of the birth announcement brought by these magi when he said that a baby has been born in your midst who is the true king of his people. Herod, in other words, was shrewd enough to understand the implication of this news. If Jesus is king, then I can't be king. And I think this is what we are invited to grapple with when we think about the meaning of Christmas. You know, when we think about the gospel, when we use this word very freely in the church, what is the gospel? We think of statements like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or, God died for your sins so that you can be saved. Now, these are important truths. But at the same time, they're not the primary content of the gospel. They're implications of the gospel. Many of you know that this word gospel literally means good news. And the Greek word is euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism, telling people the good news about Jesus. What you may not know, though, I've mentioned it actually in sermons before, but euangelion was not a general word for good news. It was a more technical term, which was most commonly used for royal pronouncements, especially when a king ascended to the throne. That was known as a euangelion, a good news declaration. Let me give you an example. In an inscription that dates all the way back to 6 BC, there has been what is known now as the gospel or the good news or the euangelion of Caesar Augustus at the time of his birth. The birthday of Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion concerning him. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order and have become God manifest. Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. This is the gospel of Augustus Caesar. And so when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news of Jesus, it's best to understand it as a royal pronouncement of a declaration of how Jesus became king. And Jesus himself would explain the gospel in the following way in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. You see, for Jesus, the good news of the gospel was inseparable from the message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here. Matthew 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Luke 4, 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, for Jesus, the preaching of the good news of the gospel meant declaring that God's kingdom has come. They went hand in hand. And to declare that God's kingdom had come meant that Jesus, the long-awaited king, had finally come. And Herod understood the full weight of that announcement. But sadly, he used that knowledge to do everything in his power to try to kill Jesus. I think unlike Herod, though, these magi responded appropriately by worshiping and bringing him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there have been so many debates about why these three gifts. What is their symbolic meaning? I think the truth is there isn't a deeper meaning other than to say these were all incredibly expensive gifts. They are the kind of gifts that you give to royalty. That's how expensive they were. And I think what the lesson from that is to say is that to acknowledge Jesus as king means that we live lives of worship that give glory to him and demonstrate his worth in this world. Uh, I was a high school kid back in the 80s. Kind of shows how old I am. <laughs> During this time of great revival that was happening in the Chicagoland area among Korean-American churches, and during that revival, I committed my life to Christ, really deciding to live for him. And during this process of the first steps of discipleship that I was taking, I was really convicted about the kind of music that I was listening to. Because if I really thought about the lyrics to a lot of the songs I listened to, I, I knew that they were not exactly honoring to God or actually probably good for my own faith. And the problem was back then we didn't have these streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music. All of us as teenagers had our own personal music collection of cassette tapes. Do you teenagers even know what a cassette tape is? Have you ever held one in your hand? Um, I should have brought one actually, <laughs> like a museum piece to show you what they look like. I had almost, I had acquired a library of almost 200 cassette tapes. I worked minimum wage jobs all through high school. Do you know what minimum wage was in, when I was in high school? <laughs> it was $3.25 an hour, okay? Every cassette tape cost around $20, $15 to $20. You get a sense of how hard it was to acquire this collection of tapes. But in that moment of devotion to God, I took that entire collection and I threw it in the garbage. And you have no idea how hard a decision that was for me. In fact, it was so hard that an hour later, I grabbed them all out of the garbage and I said, I just cannot do this. I cannot do this. Only to later that night throw it all away again and then throw it out for good so that I could not 
dig the trash again and reclaim them. And as I reflect on that story, I thought to myself, is there any parallel like that in my life today? Is there any expression in which I would make a sacrifice like that for God in my 50s? Would I, in other words, forego a family vacation so that we could give to refugee families? Would I forego upgrading to the next iPhone so that I can support more missionaries? Would I give up a night of pickleball every week to tutor underprivileged students? Oh, that one hurts. <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks ago I spoke at a retreat. Um, and uh, it was just a, I thought it was just a really incredible time that weekend that I had with this church. And in that retreat, I challenged this congregation of young adults to live a courageous life of faith and to do something bold for God. And the pastor who invited me to speak at that retreat told me after the retreat that in talking with one of the members of the church who had actually a very lucrative job, had decided after hearing that message to take that bold step of faith and walk away from that career and do something radically different for God's kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, when I first heard that story, I actually felt <laughs> a sense of no, <laughs> you know? Like, I felt apologetic and nervous because what if things don't go well <laughs> for this guy? And what if this becomes one of his life's biggest regrets? And I'm to blame for all of that. I did not want to bear that responsibility. I was like, just pray about it, you know? <laughs> Maybe just serve in your children's ministry or something like that, and you don't have to do something so radical. But maybe that revealed something about where the state of my own heart is these days. My worry is that we're always asking, what do I have to do for God? And maybe not enough, what more can I do for this God who loved me and gave his life for me? To other, in other words, truly grasp the meaning of the Christmas story is to understand that Jesus, this child that was born into our world, would grow up and rise to that place of king over all things and is worthy of our total devotion and our worship. What more can I bring to this king of kings? I just want to close with a brief application that I can offer to you during this Advent season. Um, there was this famous man named Ignatius Loyola who started the Jesuit order. And he instituted this practice called the examine, which was a prayer in five steps. And I'm not going to go over all five steps, but I just wanted to simplify them in two ways that we could apply this practice of the examine in our life. The first one is just at the end of each day, reflect on that day and ask yourself, what happened today that was honoring to God or maybe not so honoring to God? And take those things and return them in a response of prayer. Things that you beat yourself over for failures you made 
to just entrust those things to the grace of God and his forgiveness. Areas where you know you fell short that you could lift as a prayer, asking God for your help to do better. And then the second thing is, think about tomorrow. What are the things that God may be prompting you to embrace and to do the next day that are an intentional act of faith and devotion to God? And then pray that as a dedication to him to say, Lord willing, I will do this tomorrow. I think this is actually a very practical and helpful way to apply what I'm talking to you this morning about when we say our king, our savior has been born into this world. What does it mean in a very real and intangible way, in a tangible way every day to say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my king. And this is what it means for me to say, I will follow you. Let's pray.